Good evening. Thank you for coming this evening. The title of the message tonight is In Dark Gethsemane, and we are continuing on the theme of With Him All the Way. I want to ask you to stand out of reverence to God's Word as we read the text, and then we'll have a brief prayer, and then you may be seated, and we'll get on with the message. And I'm reading from the um, ESV version, so it may vary slightly from what's in the bulletin. In Jesus' name, and he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening and we thank you for these words from the book of Luke. And we just pray your blessing on the message tonight. Pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through me. And I pray, Lord, that this little section of Scripture would mean more to us after reviewing that this evening, how Christ suffered uh, before he died, and that he did that on our behalf. And I pray that you would drive that into our hearts, that we would realize the great price that Christ paid for the redemption of our souls. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Many years ago, um, Jean and I were members of a congregation, Elmwood Lutheran Church in St. Anthony Village, Minnesota. And it was customary there to invite people from different ministries to come and speak or to put on presentations, things like that. Um, one of my favorite of all of those experiences was a Messianic Jewish pastor that came and spoke. And the Lord really had an anointing on this man. It was absolutely amazing. Another time, uh, Don Byerly from Faith Search International came and did a program. And the Elmwood Lutheran Church had invited the atheists from the Minneapolis area to come to the presentation and I can remember driving to church that day kind of wondering, I wonder what this is going to look like, because I don't know a lot of atheists in my personal life, or at least ones that are pretty hardened. I haven't really had that experience. And so Don came, and he did a little presentation, and then he took questions from the floor. And I have forgotten most of that, because this is about 30 years ago. But there's one man that I still remember after all these years, and he was a Jewish man who was probably about the age I am now, in his later 60s. And I can remember him addressing Don and saying to him, I don't know how a loving God 
could allow my mother to suffer such anguish and die a horrible death of cancer. Well, that'll get your attention. Um, I'm in my 30s, and I'm thinking, I'm not sure I know what to say to this man. I mean, it's obvious he's been through something very, very hard. Well, my prayer is tonight that as we go through the suffering and the anguish that Christ went through, that we might actually have a word of encouragement for a man like that. This small section of verses gives us some remarkable insights into the life of Jesus. Most of us are familiar with certain of the highlights from Jesus' life and ministry. I'm just going to name some examples. The feeding of the 5,000, healing of blind Bartimaeus, the overturning of the money changers' tables in the temple, Jesus' teaching with authority in the synagogue. And this is just you know four of many examples we could use. But this little section shows us a very different picture of Jesus. That picture begins here in Luke 22 at the end of the chapter, which we read, and stretches into the 24th chapter of the book of Luke. It shows him as the distressed Christ, the Christ who was deserted, who was disowned, and who was despised. Far too often, this culture or this picture of Jesus is ignored today in our culture and even in many churches. We live in a culture that craves recognition and fame, in a sense kind of a triumphalist view of the world. We even have theologians that believe in a view of scripture that is described variously as dominionism or kingdom now theology. In their view, the role of Christians is to reform the world into a better place in preparation for Jesus to return to earth to a world that is waiting to receive him. It doesn't look like the world we're living in. The scriptures don't actually teach that view of theology, but it is appealing to man's carnal nature. It is a superficial viewpoint at best, and it completely misses the theology of Christ's suffering and death which is why Jesus was the incarnate Son of God in the flesh, fully God and fully man at the same time. Tonight I want to pose three questions for us to consider. First, what did Jesus experience in the Garden of Gethsemane on his journey to the cross? Second, why does what Jesus experienced matter today? And third, What have you personally done in response to what Jesus did for you? Jesus was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. His sweat was as drops of blood. Jesus was engulfed by emotions, sweating profusely. Many Christians have never confronted this picture of the distressed Christ far removed from the triumphalism, power, and success that appeals to people. He was on the brink of human suffering at its deepest level, a flesh and blood reality. No man ever feared death like this man. The disciples followed Jesus to the Mount of Olives and into the garden. Jesus cautioned the disciples to pray 
so that they would not fall victim to temptation. He then withdrew from the disciples about a stone's throw and knelt and prayed. Notice the words of Jesus' entreaty to God the Father. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus knew how hard the next hours were going to be. He followed his entreaty to the Father with the words, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And we can compare those words to what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Notice how the Father sent an angel from heaven to strengthen Jesus. He was going to bear the weight of the sins of the whole world on his shoulders. There would have to be just punishment for these sins. No wonder Jesus' sweat became as drops of blood. He was in agony in a way we cannot fully understand. So he prayed even more earnestly. He had admonished the disciples in the garden with him to pray. But like us, the disciples' flesh was weak, and the disciples ended up falling asleep in sorrow. Jesus was truly deserted, disowned, and despised. Why did Jesus have to go through all the shame, the disgrace, the extreme suffering that he endured? Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Payment for sin is costly beyond our comprehension. Sacrifices of animals in the Old Testament times provided a temporary covering for sin, but could not fully erase the sin debt that people owed to God. It was only a temporary solution. The full solution for sin could only be a sinless person, fully human as we are, yet without sin. Only Jesus, the begotten Son of God, was able to pay the sin debt and satisfy the wrath of God toward sin. What right did God the Father have to crucify his own son, to crucify an innocent man? These questions are nearly beyond our ability to comprehend. So often in today's culture, we have a tendency to trivialize the gospel, to avoid contemplating the awful price required to pay for our redemption. At this point, Jesus could only do what he had taught his disciples to do, and that was to pray. The time had come for Jesus to surrender himself. It was time to complete the plan of redemption, which the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had determined back before the beginning of time. The Father said, I will send you to the Son. The Son said, I will go. And gave himself up. The Holy Spirit said, I will come and live within the hearts of those who believe and trust in Jesus. Each of the three persons of the triune God played a part in the salvation plan. 
Listen to these words from Isaiah 53:10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He had to put him to grief. Then in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, we read these words. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And then in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, we read these words. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're talking here about the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus. He took your place. He took my place. He bore our sins in his body on the cross of Calvary. Without this core Christian doctrine of the substitutionary atonement, the death of Jesus Christ makes no sense. Jesus was the only one who is perfect, sinless life and and sacrificial death could completely satisfy the wrath of God over our sins. Yet in many churches today, this doctrine of the substitutionary atonement is under attack and marginalized. It is hard for any of us who have can clearly remember the world as it was in 1973, 50 years ago, to imagine that the fundamental doctrine of Jesus' substitutionary atonement would come under attack even without or even within churches that claim to be Christian in the year 2023. Why does any of this matter? The death, burial, and resurrection from the dead of the Lord Jesus encapsulates the gospel. Though the the following verses from 1 Corinthians 15, which we read in the worship service on Sunday, by the way, relate specifically to the resurrection itself, These verses logically apply to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus as well. Here is the Apostle Paul, and I'm quoting verses 12 through 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be pitied. Anybody remember what verse 20 says? 
But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And by logical extension, Jesus Christ did die a sacrificial death as the substitutionary atonement that paid the full penalty for the sins of those who hear the gospel message and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. That's why the shame, disgrace, extreme suffering, and eventual death of Jesus Christ matters more than anything else in this world. Your life truly does depend on this. I've addressed the first two questions I raised earlier, namely, what did Jesus experience in the Garden of Gethsemane on his journey to the cross? And the second, why does what Jesus experienced matter today? I'm going to bring this to a closure this evening by relating the story of Horatio G. Spafford, a prominent attorney from Chicago in the 1800s, who penned the words to the well-known hymn, When Peace Like a River, back in 1873. Spafford and his family, his wife and four daughters, were going to go on a vacation to Europe, and they were going to take a boat from the United States and was going to land in France. Uh, Spafford was held up by some business affairs related to his law practice, and so he was not able to travel with his daughter or with his uh, wife and his four daughters. They did get on the boat. They did cross the Atlantic, but they didn't make it to the other side, or at least only his wife did. There was an iron sailing ship that collided with the boat that his wife and daughters were on, and I think it was 226 people on that boat perished because of that, including all four of Horatio Spafford's daughters. And so he got a telegram from his wife from, I think it was Cardiff, Wales, that said just simply the words, saved alone, which he would find out she was the only survivor in his family. The other four girls had perished. So he got on a boat. That was the way of travel in the 1870s. And they traveled by basically the same route that the other boat had traveled. So they came across a place where there were markers that were placed in the ocean designating where the boat had gone down. That must have been a moving experience. Um, so they stopped there and they had some kind of a commemorative ceremony. And then... Uh, Spafford wrote the words to the hymn, When Peace Like a River, in his stateroom on his way to Cardiff, Wales, where he was going to meet his wife. I want to read the words of the first verse and then the third verse. I think you'll find the third verse very interesting. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows rolls, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And I think we kind of understand that one with the sorrow like sea billows roll, and he lost these daughters in this accident in the Atlantic. What about verse 3? <laughs> he lives, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, 
My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Well, as the story goes, um, Horatio Spafford and his wife had attended a D.L. Moody crusade about a month before the accident in the Atlantic. And as the story goes, all four of his daughters placed their faith and trust in Christ at one of those meetings in, the, uh, in Dwight L. Moody's evangelistic meetings. And so you can see that he realized, as hard as it was to lose his daughters, he didn't really lose them at all because they knew the Lord and they would be with him already. And that caused him to write this. And it does, it should move our hearts to read these words. What a wonderful thing it is to know the forgiveness of sins. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever met anyone who is from a different faith that doesn't believe in the forgiveness of sins, but I ran into a few in my working life when I traveled quite a bit. And that was something that many of them could never wrap their arms around. They just couldn't understand how can a God forgive sin? Well, what we've looked at tonight is the reason why God can forgive sin. And we should praise him for that because of what he suffered for us. I'm going to leave my third question. What have you personally done in response to what Jesus did for you, for you to ponder as you go home this evening? Let's close with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your suffering and death on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, that you as the Father cooperated with Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit to have a redemption plan that would provide a way of salvation for humankind that was lost in its sins. We see here from the verses we read tonight how the fact is is that the law is perfect, but we can't keep it because we have sinful flesh and it is beyond our ability in our own flesh to be able to keep the law. And we have to understand that to realize how marvelous grace is because once we realize we can't save ourselves, we look for what can save us and there's only one solution and that is the precious blood of the Lord Jesus shed on our behalf for the forgiveness of sins. And I pray, Lord, that that would be a reality in our hearts today, tonight, and throughout this Lenten season, that we would ponder and reflect on the things that Jesus suffered on our behalf to take the sins of the world on his shoulders. It is beyond our comprehension, really, to even understand this. But that's why we have your word, and that's why we are called to trust in your word. We know that unlike the fake news out there today, your word is true in all respects, in every single book, in every single word. It is truth. And we praise you for that, and we pray that that would give us a hunger to want to know more and more of your word, to know what it says, and to live in obedience to it. And we just praise you, Lord, for the opportunity to share your word tonight I just pray that you would bless us during this Lenten season, that we would have kind of rekindled fire in our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. These things we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.